All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. This is episode 267, Wednesday, December 15th, halfway through the last month of the year. This is the show where young salespeople come to learn about the craft of sales, up-level their career, make more money, get a great job, whatever it is that you're here after. This is the show to come for it. I'm your host, Tommy Tahoe. Um, pumped, y'all. I, I am a, a good combination of excited and very nervous for how the end of the year is going to play out here the last two weeks, um, as I'm sure a lot of you are too. So um, send in my best wishes, my positive vibes, my good sales karma all over uh, wherever you are in the world, you know, trying to close some of those last year deals and get yourself ready mentally and physically for 2022 and big shit popping off for that. Um, God, we got a great episode. I wanted to save one of the better ones that I've done in the last few months for a week like this where, you know, you might be under a little extra tension. You might be a little stressed. Uh, shit may or may not go your way depending on where you are in certain deals and, and what happens outside of your control. Um, so I, I really am excited about this episode. Um, I've got Nikki Ivy. Uh, let's, let's talk about her for a second. So um, Nikki has been in, in sales uh, in different capacities for over a decade now. Uh, started in car sales, got into software, sold a bunch of different things, uh, been a leader. Uh, she's right now working uh, at Cultured Perspectives, um, and she is uh, the head of growth development over there. She's a co-founder of the SDR Defenders, which was acquired by uh, Pavilion and Revenue Collective. Um, as a community that, you know, uh, you kind of back up the SDRs. Um, and she was recently named a LinkedIn top 10 voice in sales. So of all the people talking about sales on LinkedIn, yours truly included, uh, 10 were picked. I was not picked. She was picked uh, as one of the 10. So uh, she's one of the best, biggest uh, names in sales, 21,000 followers on LinkedIn, um, sales, career, culture, all those different things wrapped into one. We had a great conversation. Uh, we talk about how she got into sales and why. Talked about the great story of her getting, you know, kind of like picked up from a from a car parking lot where she's selling cars to a new job into software and that kind of starting this this new chapter in her life. Talk about the inspiration that her children give her to strive after her own dreams. God, we talk about how she's uplifting and taking her positive energy and uh, charisma and attitude and knowledge. And instead of just finding the best paying job is actually going to make an impact for minorities and women in sales and really making a difference there. So I have so much love and respect for Nikki. Um, this is the first time or one of the first times we've, we've really chatted in depth and it was such a great conversation. So um, I think, I hope it gives you the boost. I hope it gives you, gets you fired up. Um, I definitely recommend following her, checking her out, keeping an eye on everything that she's doing. She has some big things coming in the new year. Um, we got two words for you, uh, or two quick messages for you before we get to the actual podcast. So bear with me first would love if wherever you're listening to this podcast, you subscribe and leave a review. If it's Apple, Spotify, YouTube, that's what really helps to grow this show is hit and subscribe so you can make sure that the, the next episode comes to you directly and leaving a review if it's on Apple. Um, it should take you a minute. It makes a huge difference to me. I appreciate everything that you as the community is doing for me and for this show. You can definitely follow me on LinkedIn. Tom Alema, I'm posting every single day on sales. Um, and then I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the OG sponsors of this podcast, Postal.io. Postal helps create curated marketing experiences and sales experiences. So um, you can send, whether it's a Starbucks gift card, wine, flowers from the local florist, you can create events for your prospects. So you get your top 10 customers all together for a beer tasting or something like that. Um, they're changing the game. And in a world where we're not meeting people on site, either at all or not very much, it's a great way to build those relationships digitally, which is only going to become more important. So check them out at postal.io. Check me out on LinkedIn and hit the subscribe button. And without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Nikki Ivy. Let's go.
All right. Welcome to the Millennial Sales Podcast, Nikki Ivy. Good morning, Nikki. How are you? Good morning, Tom. I'm doing well. You're you, as we said before we got started, you woke up on the right side of the bed. You're feeling good today. I did. I did. So I live in Florida. Most of the time the sun is shining and that is uh, the, the source from which I, I siphon uh, my, my cheeriness. But today it's gray. So the sunshine has to come from within. You feel me? I do. I do. And I have to say for the people that aren't watching this on YouTube, you've got a really strong background, like Zoom background. You know, you've got the Michelle Obama, the Glennon Doyle, the LinkedIn top voices, like, you know, a little bit of a flex there, the sales <laughs> hat, which know. I think is bravada. I mean, it's like, that's, that's a legit setup right there. I mean, sometimes you got to know what it's acting like. Uh, no, <laughs> but no, and we can get into that later, but the, look, right. There are really sort of fun, lighthearted reasons why this exists, right? It's so that it's, this is what I look for when I'm talking to someone um, typically in a, a seller buyer situation, I'm always like looking at, you just did a really wonderful job just now shouting out these things, but yeah, <laughs> look at what, what common ground can I find in, in what they've got back there or what can I compliment them on? And so part of it is that, but the other part of it, Tom is there's not very many black women in this business. And there is a often a narrative that precedes black women that is first of all, obviously inaccurate often, um, but also, you know, it can put us in a situation where, you know, we have to take this extra mile to prove ourselves, right? The expertise is questioned. And so these are just me answering these questions in case somebody <laughs> got a question. Uh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, yeah, you, you, you kind of beat, you, you handle the objection before the objection comes up, you know what oh, I'm yeah. saying? It's, I go full beat rabbit, right? It's yeah. full eight mile. Oh, you thought, I already know. <laughs> it's funny. I was actually thinking about that, but I was like, am I really going to drop an eight mile reference like one minute into this podcast? So I'm glad you beat me to it. That's where this we're at how today. I know. This is how I know That's... it's going to be a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we've got we've got so much to talk about. And we, uh, we had a good conversation um, a month or two ago on this other project that I'm working on. I got to know you a little bit better. So I'm excited to share more publicly your story with, with the audience and, um, and all of the, the wisdom and experience that you've, uh, you've accumulated. So I'd love to take it back to the start of, uh, of your sales career. Uh, and maybe you could just walk me through the story of like, of how you got into sales. Okay. It's two stories, both involve car lots. Walk with me. Uh, so, so I'll talk about how I got into sales proper, right? And then I'll yep, talk yep. about how I got into B2B sales because they're yep. actually interconnected. Um, so how I got into sales, generally speaking, I had a friend and she was looking to buy a car and I accompanied her on this, uh, on this journey to buy a vehicle. And we went to this used car lot. There's this salesperson. He's like super schmoozy. And he's like super, I don't know, canned, I guess. It, it looked mm -hmm. like he had watched a video on how to car salesmen and he took all the notes, um, which is bad. So anyway, um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, you, you feel it. All of us have felt like this discomfort when you can see like sort of the, the seams of someone, right? Like I get that you're saying these things because someone told you they'd be effective, but is there a human in there anywhere? Mm -hmm. uh, that I could speak to. <laughs> so, so I, I, I spent the time trying to get this, this guy to break his veneer. Right. Cause I, I could see my friend sort of like, she wanted to buy a vehicle, but she was like drawing into herself because something about the, this person's approach was, you know, again, can rehearse robotic. And so I was actually trying to help him, but it came off like I was heckling him, I'm sure. And he was just like, and he's, I can see him. He's going over to the desk. He's talking to his manager and he's like, I think I got the, the buyer on the hook, but this person she brought with her is like throwing a wrench and everything. So anyway, he was unable to break veneer and my friend did not walk out with a car, but his manager, um, chased me out the door and offered me a job. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. 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 It was like, uh, you got something kid. Uh, and I didn't know, like, I I've always loved words. I've always been a person who understood sort of the 
power of you know what you say and how you say it to move someone. It's what I connected with. One of the first things I connected with as a very small child. And so, you know, I had that. And I guess it's, that's what this guy was identifying. But I didn't actually know that I had gumption, right? I thought everybody was just, you know, pulling up and saying how they feel. <laughs> but this guy's fervor sort of clued me. And I was like 20, 20 years old at the time. Okay. 21, maybe. Anyway, so did I just date well, myself, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's- What were you doing like, at the time? Shoot, waitressing. Okay. I I was a I was a waitress at a um a pool hall called Doodles in a small town. <laughs> small town, yeah, isn't it? Uh so I grew up a military brat. Some people know that. Fort Stewart, Georgia is around where this took place. Hinesville is sort of the small town that is adjacent to that army base. Uh Hinesville, if you're from there, is how you pronounce it. Uh but anyway, so so that's where all this took place. I get this car sales job. I start to understand, like I said, hey, I'm moving people. But there was something kind of like icky, right? Because like I said, I'm coming into this as a communicator. I'm coming into this as a connector of people. But that wasn't the assignment at this particular job, right? I would have this, this uh, I had this manager who'd constantly be like, you know, someone's walking onto the lot. He'd be like, you got to see that as, you know, that new purse you want to buy. You got to see that. Mm-hmm. as you know that 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 jewelry you want and i'm like first of all i would sooner buy a ticket to puerto rico on the beach than i would you know a purse <laughs> so you don't know me but anyway but also right he's asking me to see people as not people and and that's where the icky part um came in so i go back to college i actually do end up studying communication journalism broadcasting and all of these and sharpening these uh communication skills but still end up going back to car sales the same place no 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 no. i've moved different at this point so fast forward i am in uh austin texas and i am selling uh cars at kia i was slanging them whips as we (laughs) like to call it and uh, i was on a test drive with this guy and we had such a fun time and we get to the end of it and he's like um so you were here all day last Saturday when I came to look at cars. You've been here with me all day this Saturday, right? And you've been talking. I know you're here all the time. Like, did you know that with your skill set, you could work in the air conditioning? No. Uh, he was like, you could actually sell You could actually sell what I sell, right? You could sell software. Have you ever thought about that? And I was like, I didn't even know that that was a thing you could get paid for, mm. right? It makes sense now. Like, of course, somebody has to sell it. But at the time, I had no idea. And he's like, yeah, you should meet my boss. We're hiring. And so um, his boss ends up being Scott Least. The company is uh, a company called Outbound Engine. Uh, They were since, I believe, acquired by GoDaddy. Um, But anyway, I walk into this place. It's sort of a cattle call interview. I don't know if they even still do these anymore, but they, they did this a lot on the B2B, the burgeoning B2B tech scene in Austin around 2014, 2015. And I stood out and I get the interview and people are like, you should be scared. Scott Lease is mean. He makes salespeople cry. Uh, So, so I kind of, I was like, how am I going to nail this? What can I do? This is again, I've never spoken to this person before. He's still actually building his brand and and his career at the time. So it wasn't like it was ubiquitous, right? And anybody who's in B2B sales knows who this person is. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, which I, I want him to hear that. I didn't know who you were, Scott. You weren't that important. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I just give him a hard Lose time. Lose the ego, Scott. <laughs> I know. Can you just take it down a notch? Uh, at any rate, so <laughs> so I, I, I decide that I'm I'm gonna figure out how again how to stand out. So they had they had told us, you know, he did this podcast, you should go listen to it so you can speak intelligently, blah, blah, blah. So I did all those things, but I was like, let me see what, what his Twitter is talking about. So I go on Scott Lisa's Twitter again before ever having a conversation with him. And it's almost all like uh, the, the ups and downs emotionally of being a San Francisco Giants fan and, uh, and other like sports stuff that he's interested in. And I found things that we had in common, right? We both watched, I think, uh, ESPN 30 for 30. So in the interview, I found a place to bring this up, right? So we end up talking mm-hmm. about everybody hates Christian Leitner. I'm giving him a hard time for being a Giants fan. He's giving me a hard time for being a Yankees fan. And we're doing the thing that I've always craved, this human Mm. connection. 
I hadn't experienced it in a job interview before. I hadn't experienced it with a leader before. But again, it was just sort of like reassurance, reaffirming this idea of what I think I always knew sales could be, mm. right? Which is absent that veneer, bringing your entire self to it and really sort of compelling people to listen and have open hearts and open minds. And look, maybe, you know, we agree at the end of the day that we should work together. Maybe we don't, but this conversation wasn't empty for either one of us. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how I got into it. I learned quite a bit. I did end up going back to sell cards once again after that. Um, <laughs> it's fun y'all, but anyway, so, so that's, that's how I got into it. And, you know, I guess the rest is not quite history because I'm still like here and whatnot. <laughs> so how was it? You obviously got the job. Uh, yes. uh, what was it like working for him? As I didn't know that was his reputation in 2014 as the leader that made sales reps cry. <laughs> I didn't I don't know, know that, I think, that happened. Well, it's, it's, sometimes it's good and bad. I'll tell you this. I cried in my interview, but it wasn't because he was mean to me. I cried in my interview because he asked these really piercing questions about, like, but why are you here really? Right? Mm. Like, why is it, you know, I hear you saying that you, you know, you want to be able to have more time with your family and car sales isn't conducive to that. Great. I hear you saying that you, you want to, you want to make more money. Get it. Great. But why is all, why are all of those things important? And, you know, my answer to the question, it surprised me that I was, that I cried. I would always think that if I did, I would probably not get the job. Right. And yeah. And, um, but I think maybe it was a vulnerability for him at any rate. So I start to answer this question and I'm telling him this story, true story of uh, a time when I'd gone to pick my kids up from school and my little boy was like, can we get an ice cream cone at McDonald's? And I didn't have the 50 cents to buy my child an ice cream cone. He would ask me things like, you know, hey, you know, I want to I want to sign up for soccer. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I just couldn't I wasn't in a place where I was gainfully employed enough to be able to get those things for him. And it's again, it's not even things, it's experiences this little boy is asking me for experiences mm -hmm. that my parents got for me and that I believe were enriching. But I just it was, I was in such a tough and painful place. And I'm thinking he could tell. Mm. Right. I, he cared to see it. And clearly that stuck with me. It's why we're still friends. Um, but working with him was constantly just because of I'm a, it takes me a long time to like learn things when it comes to like treating myself well. But that was a lot of the, the, the sort of coaching that he would do with me was like, Nikki, I can see that, mm, you know, you got a few no's before lunch. And then after lunch, the activity is plummeting, right? Um, or after lunch, I can hear that, you know, you sound a little bit defeated. What's going on? And I was like, well, I did bad. And I'm mad at myself for doing bad. And he's like, uh, we don't like do that here. He's like, it's not productive to punish yourself mm. for, you know, for things not going your way, right? For the, uh, the outcome. As long as you did what you were supposed to do, you know, leading up to whatever this outcome is, like, it's just not productive. And I hadn't, like, folks had tried to tell me that before, but I was hearing it more as, you know, don't pretend like you don't have emotions about losing. That's mm -hmm. how I was hearing it before, right? What Scott was telling me was, you know, of course you have those emotions, channel them into this other direction. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze. If you haven't, do. There's this line where everybody is sad. At, you're so young. You probably, of course not. <laughs> but there's this line where everybody's sad because something tragic happened. I won't spoil it for you, but the line is, let it turn into something else. And uh, so, so Scott was encouraging me to let the, the hurt, the pain of this rejection to turn into something else. Uh, and a lot of the time I was able to do that. And so again, I, I learned a lot, a lot there. And that's I'd say those are the things, right? Is being, um, having it demonstrated how to productively embrace um, the ups and downs in a, in a sales environment. And uh, he did a really, really good job. I guess three things. There was that. There was, I still haven't met a person who writes um, a more 
sort of engaging and effective sales script than the ones I, I learned from when I was working with Scott. Uh, and there was a culture of training, a culture of training in this place. We were all full cycle reps. A lot of us were just folks that walked in off the street and never sold a thing in our, our lives when it came to software. But the training was so the focus mm. of that of that team and of that culture. Um, and everybody was in on it that I think it was probably the best possible foundation I could have had coming into B2B tech sales. And, you know, I was a lot of folks don't know because I was only there for like three months before I, you know, was like, mm, I don't know. And went back to car sales uh, before I ended up getting my life and going back to B2B tech sales once and for all. Yeah. that. Well, I think, first of all, in 263 episodes, no one's ever brought up Patrick Swayze on this podcast. <laughs> I can guarantee you. So yes. you, you, if, if that's all we're going to take away from this conversation, we've got that. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I love the story of, of you sitting down with Scott the first time you meet him and him getting to that level within you and trying to understand like, what is your motivation? Like, what is, what's bringing you here? And what's like, what's really kind of like deep seated. And I remember when we talked a month or two ago, you were talking about your ambitions and you were talking about, um, you know, being a mother and that I, I'm paraphrasing you, but so you can correct me where I'm wrong. But you said, if I shrink my dreams, all I'm doing is teaching my kids to shrink their dreams. I'd love for you to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that I have to think about and be intentional about on a regular basis. Um, other, other, moms will know this or really anybody that's been on the other side of it that wasn't a mom themselves but been a young person trying to you know pursue a dream and having you know adults in your life or leaders in your life tell you that your dream is not practical enough um you know uh, i have faced a lot of adversity in my life i have faced a lot of failure in my life and that makes it incredibly difficult to to dream again at all because there's such a risk involved in that and so you do i had started to it's one of the reasons i left uh Alpha engine so quickly i was like this isn't like i can see other people winning here i can see me winning here but you know the is it is it really going to be all it's cracked up to be am i really going to be able to get this sort of stratospheric success or do i just want to go back and do the easy thing which is charm people in person and, and, you know, have fun driving cars and, and sell these, this tangible thing. And then I found, or I, I sort of came to realize through my relationship with my oldest son, that that is what he was learning. We were at my whole family, I have four kids and, and a husband and we were at Waffle House one night and we're having fun, right? We always have fun. We're a fun family. Um, but we were, we were hella poor. And so <laughs> But my kids didn't know that. So my son was like, he looked at me and he was like, how much money do you have to make a year, mom, to be able to have just this right here, right? Be able to just, I can go out, I can take my kids to get something to eat. We can have our, our little, you know, crappy apartment, but everybody's happy, right? And so on the one hand, it, it was heartwarming because he was recognizing that what we do have with each other is valuable. But on the other hand, it was really, really painful because he's telling me that he can see that we're just getting by. He's telling me that he can see that we have just enough. And he's asking me, mom, he's telling me he aspires to that just enough. That's what mm -hmm. I was teaching him at that point, right? You got just enough, be happy with that. And, you know, just keep grinding it out and sticking it out paycheck to paycheck for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that I was doing that until he mentioned that to me. And so from that point, I mean, I just pretty much felt an imperative to, you know, if I, if I didn't at the time have the money to make these kids dreams come true, right. Then I had to have the drive. I had to be able to demonstrate it. And, and again, that's something I have to stay intentional about as my son has gotten older, he's a musician, he's an artist. He has all of these um, sort of non-standard, non-beaten path, uh, aspirations and interests and at the same time he's charming like his mama 
So what I <laughs> what I've been a uh, handsome kid too. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so I do say so myself. But uh, <laughs> is he the only one that looks like me? Sure, not a coincidence. <laughs> but anyway, so <laughs> so. Oh my God. So my instinct, because I saw the things in him that were making me successful as a salesperson, I was like, you need to do this, right? And I can, I can help you get a job as an SDR. You'll make phone calls for a year or two, and then you'll do this. And I, all I wanted was for, for him to be able to have a steady income, for him to be able to take care of himself, for him to have access to that sort of transformative wealth that a successful salesperson can have. But what he, and he had to reiterate this to me, like that is your own dream and and for for me what your dream is feels practical feels too practical mm. and so you know he's like just asking me maybe not for permission but i could see that he wanted my my blessing to go his own way and you know i as difficult as it was because of how much i believe in the power of a sales career to change someone's life um, I had to let him do that. And, and what, what, what I was talking about when, I, uh, when you and I spoke a couple months ago was this idea that when you are young, when you are, you know, however young you feel really, um, mm. but certainly when, before you have a family, before you have other folks depending on you, there is no more appropriate time to follow your dreams. There's no more appropriate time to just get in there and mess some stuff up and fail a little bit, you know what I'm saying? As long, of course, you're not hurting anybody. You're not committing crimes, right? You know, like knocking yeah. over candy stores or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But some people, I guess, whose that is dream, whose dream is knocking over candy stores? I don't know. A toddler that really wants a lollipop. <laughs> yeah. No idea. Um, but <laughs> anyway, anyway, so I was like, the kid's not hurting anybody. He's doing something that he wants. I might as well just like embrace that, empower that, encourage that. And now he is in just such a such a great place. He's happy he's spiritually fulfilled and it's one of the things that continues to you know inspire me on a daily basis mm. i love that it, we we talked about um at the beginning your background literal background behind you uh, of some of the different <laughs> pieces and obviously looking over your left shoulder is that linkedin top voices honoree from last year and just for people that aren't familiar you correct me where i'm wrong but in all of LinkedIn, of all of the, I don't even know, thousands, tens of thousands of people that are creating content specifically around sales, last year you were picked as one of the 10, right? It's 10? It's 10. The 10 top voices. Um, God, that's amazing. <laughs> and for someone that just got into sales, just got into B2B sales, you said, what, 2014, 2015? Oh, yep. It's like your fifth or sixth year in sales. Um, to get that recognition, what did that mean to you? I'd be lying if I said it didn't feel like vindication. Mm. I I mentioned before that, you know, I was only at Avon Engine for three months. I've certainly had my share of failures, right? Where I felt like I failed myself. I felt like I failed my kids. I failed my leaders who had, you know, believed in me. And that was a lot to claw myself back from. Uh, you add to that the fact that the, the voices that had been emerging or that had been sort of, you know, revered as you know, the sources of truth, the subject matter experts in this space, um, they didn't look like me. So, so I wasn't really like, there was no guarantee. There was nothing really in front of me that was telling me that something like, like being recognized as, you know, the top voice in anything uh, was possible. So it was a surprise. Again, it felt like vindication. It felt like, okay, I'm, I'm on the right path. I'm not an imposter, mm. which is something that I do struggle with sometimes. Um, and also it felt like a little bit of pressure, but then I, I let it turn into something else. Uh, I let the pressure turn into, you know, motivation. So and, and listen, this is not like I, I made that decision one day that this pressure is motivation and I never feel the pressure again. But where the pressure came from was, okay, so now, now there are people paying attention to what I say. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a responsibility that comes with that, particularly as it pertains to younger or newer sales folks coming into the profession, right? Am I 
saying things that are going to, you know, genuinely help these people on their way? Um, am I saying things that are effectively disruptive to a lot of the other things that are already being said? And so this felt like, yes, you are. Because what I know, and you and I talked about this offline, what I know I wasn't really talking about in terms of, you know, being a sales voice it's like you said, I don't really do tactics a lot of the time. I'll talk about strategy. Mostly, though, I talk about culture. So that was the biggest uh, takeaway for me. That's what was what felt like the biggest win about being a top voice was that I did it with a level of authenticity, right? I did it talking about the parts of sales that connect with me the most um, and that I didn't have to be someone else, right? I'm not going to be, these are people who I love and respect, right? Kyle Coleman, who I built SDR Defenders with, he's giving you all the tactics and I think he's the best at it, to be he's honest, great. right? So he's showing you, this is how you write an email that's effective. And he's showing you, this is how you support your SDR team as a leader. And I think all of that is really important, but he got that, right? He's doing that really well. well plenty, Christina Finseth, We'll all right. Like there are folks out there who are who yeah. are doing a really, really good job of te teaching folks how to do effective sales messaging. And so the fact to be recognized for doing something so different um, and for connecting with people and helping folks take better care of ourselves and treat ourselves better as salespeople, that was um, it was really special. You mentioned cult. You've said the word culture probably a half dozen times so far. I know that's something that's you know, one of the, the things that's near and dear to your heart that you work on, that you talk about on LinkedIn, but you also have a consulting company where I think you're working with co other companies on, on helping to kind of create that culture. I think you say like where the culture meets career, you know, or like that corner. So could you talk a little bit about where we are uh, from a sales culture? Uh, I feel like there's been a lot going on, obviously last year with COVID, with Black Lives Matter with it felt like the world was getting turned upside down. And now we've got like the great resignation going on. So like from your perspective of just where you kind of see the sales tech world, um, like where, where are we right now in, in terms of culture? Like, have we, have we made any headway? Uh, you know, I'm sure we still have a lot of gaps places. I'd love to hear you kind of just talk about that and what you're seeing out there. I think we have, I think we have made progress and I'll start with, you know, the, the mental health piece, right? Mm. That's probably a place where I'm seeing uh, some of the more surprising strides because, you know, as I alluded to before, this idea of, you know, leave your feelings at the door. Um, this idea of, you know, what does it mean to detach from the outcome without detaching from your own very real and very valid feelings that come up in, in a sales career, good and bad. Um, and so I think that we're in this place right now where salespeople are feeling a permission and, you know, best cases, an imperative to refuse to be just another brick in the wall. Mm. Um, because before, you know, I, I believe that before the pandemic um, was in full swing, before we were sort of challenged to do so. We were in real, real danger of sort of over-engineering the sales profession, right? A lot of folks contend that we, we are still over-engineering the sales process with the, the preponderance of tech that's out there to enable this. I'm not really so hard on, on the use of tech, but, but when it comes to, you know, what is the value of an entry-level salesperson? What is the value of, you know, an SDR um, that wasn't coming from the top often, right? There were folks who were getting it right, few and far between, but we, had, we were being taught as salespeople to put ourselves and our real emotions and feelings, not just second, third or fourth, but to pretend again that they didn't even exist. And for a lot of us, it's the only, it was the only way to cope, right? Mm -hmm. If I stop for a second and think about how this rejection makes me feel, if I stop for a second and think about how it feels to have, you know, my hard work overlooked because my title is SDR and not AE, then who would even stay in the profession, right? Mm -hmm. If that is, there isn't some other supporting 
you know, system coming underneath. And what happened when we saw sales folks let go in droves during the pandemic was these communities started to come up and that became that support system. It became, you know, this groundswell where folks are like, you know what? I'm not the only one who feels sad sometimes when, you know, when the rejection happens too many times in a row, right? When the quota mm-hmm. is missed too many times in a row, these existential crises, we've all done it, yeah. right? I've, I've certainly boiled myself down to my quota. Someone asked me, Nikki, how are you doing? Just how are you doing? I can't answer that question without it being about my quota. Well, I'm pacing the goal <laughs> or I'm not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I'm, I'm 150% of quota. I guess that means I'm doing great. Right. And, um, you know, I had to have my family, my husband would be like, that's not what I asked you. you know? Yeah. Um, but we were doing that to ourselves. And then these communities came up and encouraged us to stop doing that. And I think that that has a lot to do with, you know, why we're not going to take it. Why, uh, <laughs> why the salespeople have refused, you know, to, to accept that as a status quo. And then you have, um, organizations like Uncrushed, uh, which I'm a member of the, the board as we're, we're going to have a podcast coming out pretty soon. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be salespeople talking about just this, right? They're going to be mm-hmm. salespeople talking about how they approach mental health in a sales career, the impact of mental health on a sales career. At any rate, that part, I think we are making significant process. I mean, progress in. Um, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement and it's real implications in uh in the sales world Hmm. because you know and i won't get into it too much but unfortunately it looked like we got to a place where folks sort of knew right if you're if you've been on the sales floor you've been in a b2b tech company and you are white you are white male and straight you know it was mostly y'all, right? You know it was mo- your your colleagues were mostly white male straight people, mm-hmm. but no action was being taken then. That felt like I don't know how it was supposed to be, how it would always be, because we couldn't do anything about it. Um, but with the sort of fervor and the refusal to take it after, in the wake of the death of George Floyd. You know, it wasn't possible to do that anymore, right? Because that was being directly challenged, right? How long have you been in this profession as a leader and let it be okay with you that you did not have anywhere near a diverse team? How long have you been in a position of hiring salespeople that is ushering people into this profession that you weren't intentional about making sure that access to this profession was as democratized as possible? The answer for most people is the whole time, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so where we are right now, with that being challenged directly with communities like Sales for the Culture, which I'm also on the board of, uh, which is- You're busy. (laughs) Girl. No, um, (laughs) but so, so, um, it's a community, uh, we're about a thousand uh, black sellers. Uh, functions almost like an external ERG, right? Because you have a bunch of people who are in like sort of spread around the world. We're global. There are folks in, you know, Galem's part of it, right? Of course, she's in the UK with a bunch of folks in the UK, folks in Canada, folks in other parts of, of Europe, India, all these things. Um, but so those folks, though, we're still one of the only or one of few in their environments. And so now we're all together. And sometimes it can be like a sanity check, right? Like this thing happened or was said or was done, and I feel like it was a little microaggressive, um, but maybe I'm yeah. too sensitive, but we all get together, it's like, no, actually, there are iterations of this happening to sales folks uh, of color all over the world, and now we have this solidarity, and we're also about that skill up. Mm. So, you know, things like this are, I think, what's going to be our, our way out or way in, however you see it, um, into the future of sales um, that is one that includes all of us, right? That is one that intentionally invites all of us into, into this profession. And so I do think sales culture, um, again, I think we're, I actually think we're farther along with the mental health stuff, 
But when it comes to, you know, diversity in sales, we've got a long, long, long way to go. Um, but at least we're not asleep anymore. Mm. It feels like to me, what I see is that there's companies that, you know, talk about the message of having diverse, you know, companies or diverse sales teams even, um, and talk about mental health. That's important. Here's what we do for mental health and wellness at the company. And then when I talk to leaders at those companies, it's not always consistent. And so I think if I'm speaking to someone that's, you know, maybe considering a new company and any or all of these factors are important to them, I, I'm curious on your take, but I would advise them to look past what's on the company website into that leader. I was talking to a leader um, or I was part of a conversation where there was a leader talking about his team and saying, yeah, you know, we really care about, you know, the things that we're talking about. And the person asked, okay, well, what's the makeup of your team? It's like, okay, well, there's 12 guys and, and two girls and there's, you know, 13 of them are white. And, um, you know, I, I haven't taken a vacation in three years, so no one <laughs> feels comfortable doing that. It's like, the list kind of goes on and on. And it's like, okay, uh, there's kind of like a, what you do speaks louder than what you say. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm curious on your take on that, but I, I feel like it, yeah, if you're a CEO, there's a lot that you should be doing, but I would look personally at what that individual leader uh, is doing, especially the, the sales leader uh, for their own teams and what that looks like. I agree wholeheartedly, right? And that's part of the work I've been doing like professionally, right? In the, in the day jobs that I've taken on in, uh, in this time frame that we're talking about, right? Since the beginning of COVID, they've almost all worked in that space, right? That is how do we make the workplace um, safer? How do we make the work workplace mentally healthier and, and, and more diverse? And you're right, right? So what I'm encountering in this work is I'll go to a company's website. I'll see their, you know, their diversity pledge, their we stand with, right? Their pride logo. Um, and then you're right. Often when I speak to the leaders they're in, a lot of the time it's, it's not so much that they're resistant to the idea of, mm -hmm. you know, of diverse sales floors sometimes it's that they just don't know the first step to take because they're afraid to mess up but a lot of times it is complacency mm -hmm. straight up they don't have any strong feelings one way or the other so they default to well what can i on paper prove roi of to this board so that i hit my number like they're still in this little tunnel vision um, and the, the irony though, right, is that what we know about how diverse teams perform versus those that are less diverse, what we know about how teams that talk openly about vulnerability, about mental health, is that those teams perform better mm -hmm. than teams that don't. So in choosing to have this tunnel vision, in choosing to be afraid to take a step because what if it messes up everything I built here? You're actually shooting yourself in the foot. You're actually, you know, alienating groups of people who could make your organization better. Um, and so I, I actually don't quite know uh, what it will take to, you know, to, to unseat those folks, quite frankly, um, or, or to bring those folks along. I'm hoping that, you know, the things that I'm doing with my time and the things that other way more experienced, way, you know, smarter people are doing uh, towards this problem. Um, but specific to sales, we have an imperative. I believe we're the people to make an impact on this, not just at our organizations, but in the world, because we are well-practiced at making people believe in things, mm. helping people see their role in whatever the future vision is, right? So I'm talking to a BDR manager, I'm trying to sell them a, a sales tool to help their, their team. I don't do that by belittling the fact that they haven't been doing this already. I don't do that by you know talking too much about what I know about this product. I do that by saying, hey, I know you came here to make a difference with this team. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know yet if what, you know, what, what I do can help you do that. But man, it sure did for this other person that, I, that I've been working with for a few months, right? And what I see, when I met her, she was in exactly the same position that you're in. And it would just really, you know, be exciting for me to be a, any small part of helping you get to that vision. This talk track, sure, it can sell gong, right? Uh, and I don't even know if that's how they sell it. It's how I would sell it. But anyway, <laughs> this talk track You're hired. could sell gong. <laughs> this talk track could sell Dooley or whatever it is, right? And it could also sell proactive, inclusive leadership, mm. including people in that future vision, showing them where they fit in, showing them that their role is critical, I think is how, you know, how we, how we get there, encouraging folks, encouraging them to get beyond the ROI conversation. If we assume that anybody who is providing an inclusive and mentally healthy sales floor is going to be successful, then we don't have to ask those, ask those questions anymore, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about constantly telling folks, well, you make more money. Assume that that's the case, you know, the way that you assume that it's the case that if you hire all white people, you'll be fine. You feel me? Um, because Tom, has anybody ever asked you, well, what's the ROI case for hiring more white straight dudes out of college? No one's ever asked you that. You know why? Because the ROI is assumed. So if we get to that place with women and people of color uh, and people from other underrepresented groups, again, then we can start to talk about, you know, how we actually do this. What does this look like? What does this feel like on a day-to-day basis? And how are we actually supporting each other. I believe there are folks who want to do this. I meet them every day. Um, you know, they just need help and I hope um I could do that. Uh one of the ways, I want to say this before before we wrap up, um, is I have recently began working uh with a company called Inclusive, formerly Civic Dinners. And that is what we do, right? We come in and pick up where traditional diversity uh training leaves off, right? Traditional diversity training is going to be, I'm telling you, right, how to not get fired because you did or said something illegal to a coworker, or I'm telling you how to not be a jerk, how to not microaggress against folks, right? And you're just one to many absorbing that message. What happens next, right? Mm -hmm. How do we understand whether or not all of that training has been put into a proper perspective? How do we know the impact that training had on me relative to my counterpart? And the only way that we know that is to have the uncomfortable conversation. So what Inclusive does is we go in and we help folks put structure around those conversations and we help folks make these, uh, again, what can be really uncomfortable conversations. Uh, We make them easy. We make them safe and we teach folks how to do that so that the conversation can be ongoing. So again, this is, I've thrown my whole life and profession into this stuff because I yeah. do believe in us as salespeople. Again, I believe in our ability to do better. I believe in our ability to help people understand complex things and our ability to sell a vision because that's what we do every day, especially at a startup. You walk through the door, someone's like, this product is going to save this industry and the world. And we're like, yeah. But then when the, when the question is, can you make your neighbor feel more included? No, that sounds too hard. So let's like yeah, let's yeah. just apply this skill set to this problem. I want to acknowledge you for two things. I, I want to ask you a few rapid fire questions before we before we finalize. But before that, there's two things I gotta say. One is that you your energy level is vibrating at just like a high level. Like I talk to people all day long, podcasts, sales, you know, you name it. And like you you just go on a different level. I'm thinking over here, I'm like. I need to talk to Nikki more often. Like this is, I'm fired up. And so I appreciate you bringing that to the table, uh, which isn't always easy to do over Zoom. Um, and then the second thing is that, uh, you know, it seems like you're, you've understood over time, like what your kind of superpowers are, your master communicator, uh, if nothing else. And there are probably easier things that you could do with that than what you're doing, right? There's maybe like easier money to be made of being like, you know, a brick in the wall, as you'd say, is at a huge company and be a rep and just like, you know, use your communication skills to sell software. Um, but you're doing it to make a, a, a serious impact. And so I, I wanted to acknowledge you um, for that because I think it's awesome. Thank you. Um, well, somehow segue from that to a couple rapid fire <laughs> questions. 
before we uh before we let you go um so first i see the two books i see untamed i see michelle obama there's a few others uh there that i can't make out but we're big learners on this podcast so i'm curious maybe it's those two but but which books have been most impactful to you uh throughout your career they could be you know any genre is is fair game but just curious if anything comes to mind you know, I'll tell you the the first book that I was recommended, and I'll tell you the last one, uh, most recent one that was uh, impactful to me, and okay. they actually kind of operate at at polar uh, polar ends of the the sort of learning or ph- philosophical spectrum. Um, and I think the way I responded to this second one speaks to the growth I've had since I was introduced to the first one. So again, mm-hmm. we talked about I was at uh, Outbound Engine, and um, in this training class. One day, uh, the part of the training where Scott Lee's came in and sort of addressed this crowd right before we were going to be like unleashed onto the phones, and he talked about this book, Forty Eight Laws of Power. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I know many people have read it, um, and it it actually though, when I started to read it, became really really clear that I can't do leadership, and I can't do, you know, I guess confidence in the same way that really anybody else can but certainly in this I can't be Scott Lee's right Right, I will never have the frame of reference I will never have the way that sort of society and institutions engage with a, a black woman as it differs from the way that those things engage with the white man that would encourage me to see the way that you know success and strategy is laid out in 48 laws of power to be able to do it that same way I can't it's a fun book. It's entertaining. And at the time, I tried to fit myself into that box. Mm-hmm. I tried to fit myself into this. Um, for those of you guys that don't know, it's just these, these different principles. But it, it can at points read like the art of war, right? A lot of the time, it's, it, it can be super aggressive and it can be really like nobody else matters but you. And this is certainly just my interpretation of it. But at the time, I, tr- I tried for a couple of years to put myself in that place mentally, put myself in that place emotionally. And it, you know, flat out didn't work, right? Um, But I would still say read the book because it will help you find what kind of leader are you? What kind Mm -hmm. of salesperson are you? There are things about what I just mentioned, right? Style-wise that I do wish came more naturally to me. And if those things do come more naturally to you, then you might find yourself in that book in a more positive way, right? But I was so glad that I read it because again, it helped me understand who I am and who I am not as a salesperson, as a communicator in general, right? Cut to uh, this past year, I've, I read The Motivation Myth. The Motivation Myth takes this idea of what drives people to do things and turns it on its head. Picture it, if you will. Uh, you're a salesperson and you, you can't muster up right the energy to make one more fucking phone call you just can't right you and what you would say is i don't feel motivated so i'm not motivated so i can't do is the existing paradigm Mm -hmm. right the flip is when i do i am motivated Mm -hmm. so rather than waiting for the motivation to come that's going to spark me and and put a fire under me to do something. I I start to learn that when I do little things that make me feel like a winner, when I do little things that make me feel accomplished, that's where the motivation comes from. So sitting around and waiting to feel more motivated um, is counterproductive. And it sounds obvious as I'm saying it, but for me and for a lot of people that have sort of sat on the other side of me in in a sales role, right? That feeling of if I don't have it, I'm not feeling motivated today, I can't bring it is real. So what that looks like in practice as a salesperson, um, you know, is, is things like I make a small goal of how many calls I want to make before noon, right? For me, it was always I need 30 before noon, right? And when I accomplished that 30 before noon, it was so much more difficult for any no to hurt me. Because I'm already a winner, right? Yeah, I'm already, yeah. I'm motivated to keep going because I know that getting through 30 cold calls in, before any time, right, can be difficult when it's a, this environment with a high volume, high rejection type situation. So I already know I won. 
And now when I go into it, let's say I get a, somebody that answers the phone, motivation. Somebody that answers the phone, I get through the intro, motivation. So it's about reframing, right? The idea of what a win is, letting yourself be open to the fact that sometimes the big win, right? Is act, it can be a letdown after the fact, right? So you, you want to get to President's Club, you've worked all of this time and then President, President's Club happens, but that win, it's not lasting. It's fleeting. Mm-hmm. So even if I get it, I'm going to need something else the very next day, mm. right? To put me back on the phone. That is, of course, if I don't let that win be the thing that motivates me to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, so that I, that's the book that I would recommend right now. That and Pursuit of Perfection, which has echoes of some of the same thing, um, but which sort of talks about going from being a perfectionist to uh, from seeking perfection to uh, seeking optimization, right? Mm. So am I doing everything and nothing goes wrong or am I setting myself up to be optimized for things to go right? There's room for failure in that. There's room for nuance in that. There's room for learning in that. Whereas the pursuit of perfection uh, sort of takes all of that away from you and you're either the best or the worst, you know, depending on how your day went. I love it. I do not know. I I have 48 Laws of Power. haven't read it. Um, I've tried to, but it's just kind of dense. Uh, the other two I haven't read. Do the, do the audio book. The dude talking is like hella sinister and it's like it's entertaining <laughs> if nothing else. Okay. Okay. Um, so we're, we're, we've got time for like, I can give you two real quick questions. So first one, first thing that comes to your mind, I got to know what's, what's happening in the Nikki Ivy Spotify or Apple music or wherever you listen to music. What's, Ooh. what's going on in the headphones? Y'all going to be mad. So I'm one of those people who starts playing Christmas music on Ooh. November 1st. Okay. It's it's what was happening in here right before we got on this call. Uh, (laughs) Now, I I have some discipline because I'm not a complete psychopath. And I do wait until after Thanksgiving to play Mariah Carey all I want for Christmas, right? We hold that one for the end. You feel me? That's the finale. Um, But right now, there's a lot of Ariana Grande Christmas and chill. What? Mm. It's so fun. It's such a fun Christmas album. Obviously, Pentatonics, all of the Christmas stuff that gets on people's nerves who don't like Christmas music, but that makes me so very happy i love it last question for you who would you want to see on this podcast after you Ooh, i feel like the people i'm going to name have already been on here um so i'll skip those that's all right could we could get around to who's top in mind for you you've had galem on the show i have of course okay love um there is a gentleman who i work with uh he actually is the founder of culture perspective the consultancy that i work at and uh marcus knight is his name Mm -hmm. Have you had Marcus not on the show? No, I don't know Marcus. Marcus is a friggin' star, right? He's got three like successful exes under his belt. He like oh. he's, he's he's a super successful dude, and he's one of these people who right right now in my life is you know probably the strongest supporter, uh, the strongest influence because we we met in sales for the culture, and you know he instantly saw something something in me but more than that why you should have him on the show um is not just because he believes in in me uh (laughs) but because he's he's so smart as a leader and what we do right in in him forming culture perspective i'll say this as fast as i can uh because i know that we're we're at time but he started culture perspective because he like what i just described in a sales career very rarely saw sales expertise coming from black people right you you get assigned books right you start a job and they're like hey read 48 laws of power or you know read this book or that book and most of the time those books that you're that you're recommended are by folks who do not look like you if you're a black person and so Mm -hmm. then you start to let this idea sink in over a career that sales expertise comes from white people sales expertise has a face right we know that it doesn't but that's what it started to feel like and marcus has taken that with culture perspective and turned it on its head. That's the energy we're bringing into the startups that we consult is without even having to say anything, this is where sales expertise can come from. Um, and, and that kind of expertise can propel your organization to the next level. So have him on the show. He will tell you hashtag all the things about sales, sales leadership, sales culture, um, and how he's helping uh, new salespeople win. 
I love it. Nikki, this was great. I, my, my only regret, I wish we booked 90 minutes instead of 60. Um, <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, before I let you go, definitely let people know the best place. I, I assume the best place to reach is on LinkedIn, but if it's not, let everyone know the best place that they can hit you up with questions or if they want to connect with you. You know what? LinkedIn is actually my LinkedIn inbox is a bit of a dumpster fire right now. Yeah. Oof. So I likely, uh, if we're not already connected, I wouldn't really recommend that um, as a place to reach me. My Instagram. Okay. Don't nobody care about me on Instagram. These people do not know who I am. And so <laughs> I would be flattered and excited to get messages on either Instagram or Twitter uh, from folks listening to this. Because again, those are places where I don't quite have um, the audience or the connections that I'd like to have, because I think this, it's a little bit more of, a, of an intimate and personal um, tone on those platforms. What's your handle? Is it just Nikki Ivy? Oh, you're right. Uh, it's no Nikki Ivy. So not no as in rejection, but as in get to know. So K-N-O-W Nikki Ivy on both platforms, Instagram and Twitter at no Nikki Ivy. I love it. Nikki, thanks for, uh, for spending the time. This was great. Thanks so much, Tom. It was so much fun. Thanks for checking out that episode of the Millennial Sales Podcast. We're in the home stretch, November and December of 2021. Let's close this on a strong note. Please make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening here. It'll help me grow this show and provide better content for you. Otherwise, hit me up on LinkedIn, Tom Alamo. I'll see you there. Peace.